Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society virtual event. Uh, we're very sorry we had some tef- technical difficulties uh, over here, and so we're able to just get started. Uh, but thanks very much for your patience and uh, and uh, your flexibility. So, but we're here to get started. Uh, we've got the hour um, to cover this topic. We're going to be covering the Biden administration's enhanced policies on corporate criminal and regulatory enforcement. I'm Nicholas Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that expressions of opinion on our call today are those of our experts. Uh, we're very pleased to be joined today by two experts on this, uh, both private practice attorneys. Uh, we're, we're joined by Luke Cass. He's a partner at Womble Bond Dixon, Dickinson, pardon me, uh, and uh, his partner, Britt Biles, uh, also at Womble Bond and Dickinson. I hope I pronounced that correctly. They can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, of course, we'll be looking to the audience uh, towards the later portion of the call for your questions. So please submit those via the chat or the Q&A chat, and we'll get to them as we can. Um, with that, thanks everyone for your patience. And uh, Britt, I'll give the floor to you. Thank you for joining us today for a discussion on corporate criminal enforcement trends under the Biden administration. We will discuss DOJ corporate criminal policies, provide a three-year retrospective on some corporate resolutions at DOJ, and delve into some corporate criminal enforcement policies at the SEC as well, well, civil at the SEC. We also will touch upon what we believe will be future uh, enforcement trends. Our hope is that we have a lively discussion and are happy to answer any questions that you may have. Luke, let's kick it off with a backgrounder for the group on the federal guidelines for prosecuting a corporation. What factors does the Department of Justice consider? Thanks, Brent. And thank you to the Federalist Society for having us here today. Apologies for the delay. And thank you all for those in attendance for joining us. Uh, there are considerations which are contained in what is called the Justice Manual which is available online for all federal prosecutors to review. They don't confer any rights on anyone, uh, but they're intended to set forth DOJ policies on a a number of different areas and guidance to prosecutors that they're to consider in making charging decisions, including uh, the federal prosecution of business organizations. Uh, It requires, among other things, for prosecutors to focus on individual wrongdoing from the beginning of any corporate misconduct investigation. It cautions prosecutors not to treat corporations any more uh, leniently or harshly because of their artificial nature. It also states that when prosecuting a business organization, whether a corporation, LLC, or partnership, that is not a substitute for individual prosecution, and you cannot tie resolutions pertaining to an individual to any any resolution. Lastly, corporate charges may be appropriate even for minor offense conduct, where there's been a history of wrongdoing or condonation by upper management. Uh, It doesn't have to be criminal misconduct. It can be civil, regulatory, and there's no time limitation on that. And while these are uh, general guidelines uh, for consideration, there are also specific factors that go into the uh, charging decision itself. Things like the nature and seriousness of the offense, uh, the pervasiveness of the wrongdoing within the corporation, their history of similar conduct, uh, willingness to cooperate, adequacy of their compliance programs, uh, their disclosure of wrongdoing, remedial actions, collateral consequences, 
adequacy of remedies or the uh, of the individual prosecution as well as the interest of victims. Britt, are, are they are these factors similar to how the SEC approaches whether to file a complaint against a corporate defendant? Generally, yes. I don't think the enforcement manual is as prescriptive as the uh, justice manual is. Um, but one additional factor that the SEC always takes into consideration in, in making uh, charging recommendations during the action member process is litigation risk. When I was in enforcement of the SEC, litigation risk and whether a case could be successfully uh, prosecuted was always a consideration because of concerns about programmatic implications of bringing cases that might not be successful. But my sense now with a more aggressive posture at the SEC is that the litigation risk factor is taking a backseat to general programmatic concerns. The SEC seems focused on expanding its uh, remit and ensuring the uh, application of its regime to new products. So I think the litigation risk is less of a priority than it once was. But Luke, there's also been a lot of talk about corporate monitors coming out of the Department of Justice that um, seems to be a slight change in posture from earlier years. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Previously, um, the decision about corporate monitors was made on a case-by-case basis. It was it was essentially viewed as a reserve remedy that was only implemented after a cost versus benefit analysis that goes back to 2008 and the memo put out by then acting Deputy Attorney General um, Warford. A decade later, in 2018, Assistant Attorney General Brian Benchkowski issued a memo that elaborated on that potential benefits analysis. And and he said that it requires consideration of four different things, whether the misconduct involved manipulation of corporate books and records, whether it was pervasive, whether the corporation made significant investments in and improvements to its compliance program, and whether those improvements have been uh, tested to demonstrate prevention. And it also added that monitors should be imposed only when there's a demonstrated need for it relative to the uh, costs and burdens. In in recent times, have you seen an expansion of the number of monitors and how are these monitors being selected? Yeah, like anything, it's subject to negotiation uh, with the department, but there's been two recent corporate resolutions in which monitors have been appointed. In one of the agreements, DOJ selected the monitor and the other, the defendant was actually allowed to select the monitor. Uh, Going back to 2018 and uh, Mr. Benchkowski's memo he had set up a standing committee on the selection of monitors where candidates were monitor, uh, were nominated, reviewed, and voted upon, and then approved all the way up to the assistant attorney general, um, to the deputy attorney general. But monitors have uh, oversight and reporting obligations to ensure that the terms of any corporate resolution are being complied with on a specific timetable, among other responsibilities. Typically, it means more costs um, and more time to an ultimate uh, resolution. Uh, when you were at the SEC and, and you worked at the SBM, I'm sure you collaborated with uh, a number of different agencies. Are they taking a similar approach to corporate resolutions and, and monitorships? I think the SEC has always been active in the monitor space, maybe not in a formal way, but in various cases under certain circumstances, the SEC has always sought monitors. Uh, going back as, as early as 2015, for example, I was involved in investigations and cases where the SEC uh, sought undertakings that included monitors in some situations. But we, we've touched on um, some speaking by DAG Monaco last fall on corporate criminal enforcement. Can we elaborate on that and tell the audience what she said? Sure. There's been a lot of uh, different speeches uh, and a lot of tough talk recently on corporate criminal enforcement. 
<clears throat> it began last fall, as you said, um, when Deputy Attorney General Monaco announced that companies should actively review their compliance programs to ensure they adequately monitor for and remediate misconduct or else it's going to cost them down the line. She added that in terms of resolutions, the department will review a company's whole criminal, civil, and regulatory record, not just a sliver of that record. And for clients cooperating with the government, they need to identify all individuals involved in the misconduct, not just those substantially involved and produce all non-privileged information about that involvement. And then earlier last month, both the Attorney General and the head of DOJ's criminal division re-emphasized that the department's first priority in corporate criminal cases is to prosecute the individuals who commit and profit from corporate malfeasance since that offers the best uh, deterrent to corporate crime. So we're seeing DOJ lay down the groundwork uh, for a marker or a line in the sand when it comes to a corporate criminal enforcement. A case out of the Southern District of New York yesterday um, involved multiple corporate executives of Arcos uh, Capital Management for being charged with racketeering, securities fraud offenses, and, a, and an alleged multi-billion dollar scheme for involving derivatives and swaps, artificially inflated portfolio using uh, acquired leverage. Um, Deputy Attorney General Monica was on hand and made similar pronouncements about individual accountability at that uh, press conference. But Britt, is this, um, tell us, is this a departure from um, prior guidance and, and what was that? Absolutely, over the years, there's been a swing at DOJ from the Yates memo to the Rosenstein memo and now back to the Monaco memo. And essentially the Monaco memo is a revival of the Yates memo. And the biggest difference is that the Rosenstein memo and the Trump administration allow for corporations to receive partial cooperation credit as long as they were meaningfully assisting with the government's investigation. And that was true even if they were unable to identify all relevant individuals or provide complete factual information despite their good faith efforts to cooperate. But now this focus is back on providing information about all individuals as opposed to only those who are substantially involved or responsible. There's also been a shift away from the the Trump administration Rosenstein memo policy that looked at uh, corporate resolutions from a whole of government approach. They took into account the totality of fines, penalties, and forfeiture that might have been imposed by various DOJ components or other federal regulatory or law enforcement agencies. And so there's been a more shift away from that in corporate resolutions. So essentially, we're the Monaco memo is Yates 2.0. But Practically speaking, I mean, I think we need to focus on what this means for corporate internal investigations and what companies seeking to cooperate really need to focus on now. What are your thoughts? I think the simple answer is that makes cooperating a lot harder to do and the process uh, a lot more complicated in in several different ways. First, time is obviously a resource like anything else from a a corporate perspective. Our clients have businesses to run. Uh, The reality is that these Protracted investigations are distracted from those uh, core concerns of theirs. Second, the length of the investigations is likely to be a lot longer and costs are likely to be higher. One of the reasons that Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein's revised standards were positively received is that there was a perception based on the guidance that disclosures could be more limited to receive credit and that DOJ would consider the totality of the fines with all regulators in one resolution which meant less burdensome investigations and one overall resolution, which in turn resulted in faster and more cost-efficient outcomes. Now, as you said, Britt, in order to receive cooperation credit, you're required to identify all individuals involved, not just so substantially involved. 
produce all non-privileged information about their uh, those individuals' involvement. So I could see investigations getting uh, bogged down in identifying that lower-level conduct to ensure the client gets full cooperation, which translates into longer investigations and, unfortunately, more costs. When you have a monitor as part of the plea agreement or deferred prosecution agreement, uh, that only lengthens the, uh, the process. And Britt, this notion of providing uh, all non-privileged information, DOJ memorializes this in the Justice Manual, of course, but that's often something that's uh, more complex uh, in reality, isn't it? Yes, and also I think DOJ, based on uh, some things that we've discussed before, is I think line prosecutors are maybe in a position to to either seek or pressure for waivers um, when even though the policy may not be for that. So I think uh, practically speaking, a company that's seeking cooperation may feel like that they're in a bind and need to make a waiver in order to receive that cooperation credit. And now the case law in the majority of circuits is that there is no selective waiver. It's waive it or you don't. Um, so that makes the decision much harder for corporations. But what's the feedback that you're hearing from uh, others like us in the, the white collar bar? Well, it's aggressive to be sure. The, the rhetoric coming from the department, especially from the uh, top echelons, the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, uh, the chief of the, of the criminal division. Um, and we've heard uh, other comments, you know, we, don't, we won't shy away, we won't be afraid to lose. So that's certainly not lost on most folks, but uh, I'm not sure if it's the right messaging for all, all types of uh, cases. Obviously, a determination has been made that corporate criminal enforcement is a top priority for the administration. And for many companies, there's no choice um, when it comes to cooperation. They, they believe it's in their best interest to cooperate, they'll, they'll do so. Um, but for others, uh, that may not be as true. And I think it's in everyone's interest to incentivize cooperation. You want companies to be uh, comfortable coming forward as soon as they learn about something. Certainly, uh, many of the different types of cases could not would not be made absent that that cooperation. But I I think there's a sense or a fear that this overly aggressive rhetoric could dissuade certain certain companies from doing that. Uh, if the if the cooperation process is as arduous uh, as fighting the case on the merits, some companies are going to do their own cost versus benefit analysis and and choose to fight at the end of the day. And I think that's true in SEC enforcement as well, not just in the cooperation space, but just in the sense of the settlements that may be offered. If, if a company is being provided terms that they can't agree to, they're going to be much more willing to litigate to try to put themselves in a better situation. Um, but fortunately, compliance programs are a really key part here. And if, if companies have well-designed and operational compliance programs, hopefully they can avoid some of these pitfalls. Um, so let's talk about what the Department of Justice has said on effective compliance programs. Um, DOJ put out a memo last, uh, in June 2020 that spelled out some requirements and considerations for corporate compliance. And they focused on is the, your compliance program well-designed? Is it risk-based and integrated? Does it have appropriate controls? Does it manage relationships or real actions and consequences? Is it applied in good faith with a commitment by senior and middle management? Does it have appropriate resources? One thing that I know the SEC has said is that they frown upon companies who may have uh, saved money during the pandemic by cutting their compliance departments. Um, 
And then the ultimate question is, does the compliance program actually work in practice? Is it continuously being approved and tested and monitored? Um, is misconduct being investigated or remediated? Um, and the SEC has been vocal in this area, too, and they have spoken a lot about risk-based uh, programs. Is the compliance program something that is designed to meet the specific risk of the business, or is it an off-the-shelf policy that isn't tailored to the specific concerns? Mm-hmm. Brent, you recently sat down with the SEC's Director of Enforcement, Gurbir Garwal. Did, did he offer any valuable insights into corporate resolution policies or has the CFTC? Yeah, so um, I had a good conversation with Director Grewal um, where he talks about a number of these things. He, he talks about uh, compliance programs and the need for them to be risk-based and tailored and not off the shelf. But in terms of corporate um, criminal uh, corporate enforcement, um, the SEC and, and Grewal reiterated this has always put a focus on individuals. And, and when you're talking about causing and any embedding violations, those are really focused on uh, executives and, and senior officials within companies who may be responsible for a company's violation. So the SEC is continuing its focus on holding individuals accountable, and you will see lots of corporate actions where individuals are also charged and may face officer director bars and and the like. So I think that's going to continue at the SEC, and he's also indicated that they will continue to be aggressive in the use of admissions in appropriate cases um, and officer director bars and other things that really fit with the idea of protecting the public. So I think that's just going to be more of the same, but it's deployed in a much more aggressive way than it may have been in the past. I think a good example of that is how uh, Director Grewal indicated they're treating uh, penalty amounts and past settlements. Um, I think most of us in the SEC Defense Force are familiar with the concept of, of going into enforcement and saying, here's the rubric of, of past settlements for this type of conduct, and the penalty was X, the disgorgement was Y, and here's where we fit on that continuum. Um, Director Grewal actually said that could boomerang in many cases because the SEC is now looking at that as being a sign that the past settlements were not actually deterrents. If you're coming in and saying a prior settlement involving your company or, or similar companies was X amount of dollars, then he indicated that the SEC might think that X amount of dollars is no longer good enough. Often upon uh, learning of wrongdoing, most companies will decide to do a privileged internal investigation either uh, before cooperation actually begins, maybe in tandem with some form of DOJ interface. Can you give our audience a sense of the potential outcomes for that type of inquiry? Yeah, so there, there's many different ways that, that things can go. I mean, I think at the outset, people are focused on doing a privileged internal investigation and seeing where it leads. If there are no adverse findings, then generally that's the end of it. There's no disclosure obligation. And or there could be um, things that need to be reformed at the compliance program, or there might be instances where wrongdoing or some sort of violation is found, and then you get to a situation where you may be making a self-report to the SEC or DOJ. Um, and the self-report question is always a difficult one to, to analyze and answer, and whether it's appropriate or whether the company can expect to get some sort of meaningful cooperation credit. Um, But then the outcome could be anything from an administrative action to a consent decree to a litigated civil action 
to criminal charges. Um, and obviously DOJ is in the criminal charging business, but they can they can de- decline charges or they can enter into NPAs or DPAs. And the SEC is using those tools as well. So there's a variety of outcomes um, when a company is, is suspecting that they may have a problem. And Britt, in terms of corporate resolutions with DOJ, can you just walk us through a snapshot of the last three years? Let's start with 2019. Yeah, so over the past three years, uh, there's been a, a meaningful number of corporate resolutions. They've primarily been in the FCPA and market integrity, major fraud spaces. So you'll see in 2019, there were 15 total, uh, and they were um, bringing in around $3 billion in monetary amounts globally, around $3 billion in the U.S., and, and about $2 billion of those dollars were going through the criminal system, but the FCPA violations made up the lion's share of those enforcement actions and dollars. Um, in, in 2020, the, the number dropped to 13. That that 15 to 13 could be a blip. It could be pandemic related, um, but it still ends up the same way. FCPA violations taking up the majority of the dollars and resolutions uh, with major market integrity, major frauds making up the rest. And then in 2021, it was down to to eight. And and no, three plus six does not equal eight, but that actually means that there was a joint resolution that was both FCPA and MIMF. So that's why there were eight resolutions, but three and six of each category. But the dollars were right around $3 billion again. Um, But the FCPA piece of it wasn't as large in 2021 as it had been in prior years. Uh, What does that mean going forward? I think we'll still see lots of FCPA enforcement as we'll see. As you said, the numbers are obviously down to the pandemic. I imagine they'll continue to significantly increase as the the department makes its push as they, uh, as the resources that they brought to bear start uh, producing. Uh, Let's shift gears a little bit, uh, Britt. What's currently happening with pandemic fraud? Seems like every day there's a new, uh, PPP fraud case coming out. Well, uh, this is an issue that's close to my heart because I was the general counsel of the SBA during the pandemic. So PPP and, and IDLE are, are things that I'm very well familiar with. Um, but the, the pandemic fraud is, is, I actually think, a growing priority. I think early in the pandemic, there were lots of low-hanging fruit types of cases that were brought Um someone got a Lamborghini with a PPP loan, that kind of example. But now it seems that the focus is shifting into more complex cases and frauds. Um, For example, the attorney general mentioned three areas in the speech earlier in the month. Obviously, they involve PPP, IDLE, and the Provider Relief Fund. And I think this will continue. But the appointment of Kevin Chambers as this director for uh, COVID-19 fraud enforcement, um, there were some clues in the announcement of his appointment that suggests that the different types of cases may now be the focus. More complex cyber-based cases, more complex cases involving identity thieves and organized criminal organizations. So the bigger complex cases seem to be the direction this is going. Um, But there was also a reference to strike teams. So it may be that DOJ approaches this the way they have the healthcare strike force teams in the past. And there's certainly been an effort by DOJ to increase its resources. Um, The attorney general's requested budget increases to hire 120 attorneys and 900 FBI agents. And obviously this is on top of all of the the resources that were already dedicated during the enactment of the CARES Act for for the PRAC and the SIGPR and those various organizations that have been working on 
pandemic fraud. But one area that I think hasn't gotten as much attention that may be getting more attention is the unemployment insurance schemes. According to DOJ, there were $860 billion in federal funds for unemployment benefits. And many of those funds may have been siphoned off by international organized crime groups, identity thieves, street gangs, and even prison inmates. So there may be a push by DOJ to take on some of those issues as well. I think we're going to see these cases for years to come. So here are some current and future enforcement areas that we think are going to be priorities for DOJ going forward. And we're going to tick through these one by one. And Luke, let's start with foreign corruption. So uh, foreign corruption and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act will continue to be a, a focus area, particularly in Latin America. Uh, 2021 was a slow year for FCPA enforcement actions and resolutions. Out of the limited number of resolutions, two of those involved companies in South America, specifically in Brazil. Both were charged with alleged violations of the anti-bribery books and records and internal control provisions of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, both cases involved the alleged payment of bribes. And in the case of one matter, the parent company was accused of failing to promptly and adequately respond to warning signs of corruption or controls or control failure, excuse me, in, in one of its subsidiaries. In 2020, there were four FCPA actions. Uh, again, three of the four were in South America, two in Brazil, one in Peru. So FCPA enforcement will continue to focus on South America. Uh, in addition, recently disclosed FCPA investigations involves companies in the Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, which shows a, a narrowing focus of the, uh, on the region. DOJ created an anti-corruption task force focused on the Northern Triangle with different representatives from various criminal division components, including uh, the FCPA unit of the fraud section, as well as the kleptocracy asset recovery initiative, um, which is part of the money laundering asset recovery uh, section at, at DOJ. So um, in terms of resources, there is a Latin America corruption task force in the FBI office in Miami, and a number of FBI agents have been detailed to the fraud section at Main Justice um, embedded to work um, side by side with uh, FCPA prosecutors. Um, so look to those to, to certainly continue. Interesting. What about antitrust? Hasn't there been a resurgence there? Yeah, the, the, the division appears to be reinvigorated. Um, last year, the division brought 25 criminal cases against 29 individuals and 14 corporate defendants. It now has 146 open grand jury investigations, the most in 30 years, according to Attorney General Garland's speech. Uh, they're now trying to or preparing to try 18 indicted uh, cases against 10 companies and 42 individuals, including eight uh, C-suite ex uh, executives. So um, very, very busy. Uh, the division has had two setbacks recently involving allegations of employment related antitrust crimes. These cases were styled as uh, anti-poaching conspiracies uh, and companies and executives were charged with uh, conspiracy to suppress competition. In the labor market, there was an acquittal in Texas. Uh, and then later that same week, there was another acquittal in Colorado. So a few setbacks uh, for the division. But these are these are novel theories that, that haven't been tried before. Brent, what about market manipulation and financial fraud? Well, financial fraud uh, offenses are always going to be a high priority, whether it's insider trading, other types of securities fraud. Those are things that the DOJ prosecutes in parallel with the SEC. There's also um, going to be more work coming out of the CFTC, I believe, because they've launched a new division of data that relies upon existing CFTC reporting, market intelligence and surveillance uh, to better identify uh, 
trends and potential violations and, and pursue certain division of enforcement criminal priorities. So I think that we might see more collaboration between the DOJ criminal division and the CFTC going forward. And in particular, spoofing is an area where um, data analytics is going to be important. And we've seen DOJ dedicate new resources to commodities fraud prosecutors. And there have been several spoofing prosecutions already over the last few years since Dodd-Frank criminalized spoofing. Um, but I, I think that this is an area of, of increasing trends. And, and we're seeing some of this in a particular case involving um, energy pricing benchmarks um, and, and the Platts publication. So I expect there will be more of that going forward. Bridget, do you think the infrastructure bill uh, will have an effect on, on enforcement trends? Uh, I would expect so. I mean, whenever $1.2 trillion is flowing into the economy, I think there will be an increase in, in criminal activity and regulatory violations associated with it. And certainly the federal regulatory agencies and law enforcement authorities are going to be looking for um, potential violations to pursue. Um, so if you look at the areas where the capital will be flowing in the uh, infrastructure bill, pipe replacement, high-speed internet, road and bridge repair, public transit, clean energy. Uh, those are things that intersect with procurement. Um, so I would suspect there's going to be some procurement fraud prosecutions down the line, maybe some antitrust cases, which we've already talked about. And then bid, bid rigging is also in play. And whenever you're dealing with any sort of government dollars, there's always the False Claims Act area. That's right. And they're, they're putting resources in place likely for that. For that reason, the Department of Justice announced a procurement collusion strike force, which is an interagency partnership uh, dedicated to investigating and prosecuting uh, antitrust crimes related schemes that target procurement fraud specifically, including grants, program funding at uh, the federal, state and local level. It's the fraud section of DOJ, as well as the antitrust division and various U.S. attorney's offices in strategically important uh, locations, as well as other um, national law enforcement partners. Um, what about um, environmental? You mentioned clean energy before. Um. Yes, yeah, so the infrastructure bill invests $21 billion to clean up Superfund and brownfield sites, reclaim abandoned mines, and, and cap oil and gas wells. So, so there is money moving in that direction. And also, obviously, this administration is very focused on um, environmental issues. So I would suspect there will be more environmental crime investigations. And A.G. Garland has stated that the Environmental and Natural Resources Division at Justice, ENRD, is prioritizing the investigation of prosecution of individuals that, who commit and profit from corporate environmental malfeasance. So I think this is going to be an ongoing area, and they're already trying 11 indicted cases against 11 companies and 34 individuals. So I think this will continue to grow. Some DOJ officials uh, recently, I think it was earlier this week, made reference to criminal enforcement on climate change specifically. Uh, so it's a, that looked for that to be a sort of new category of enforcement, pollution, waste crimes, environmental justice and uh, President Biden's executive order uh, devoted 44 million to uh, in, in the budget to um, to this specific issue of uh, climate change offenses. And I think that's an area where cooperation and settlements resolutions would be particularly difficult because there are so many different views on, on policy in that area. So I think if those areas are pursued, then that will be a very hot litigation topic going forward. That's right. And another thing to keep in mind uh, in terms of infrastructure funding is it's likely to come in a variety of different um, ways, grants, 
pilot uh, projects, R&D programs, tax exemptions, tax credits, and other incentive mechanisms in the the DOJ's uh, criminal tax division will likely be uh, a key enforcement partner in an effort to protect the integrity of those funds. The division handles or supervises most uh, federal criminal tax prosecutions broken out into three uh, regional areas, northern, northern, southern, and western. Another area uh, likely to be implicated um, in infrastructure is public corruption. Many of the infrastructure's bill provisions will require companies to interface with local, state, and federal public officials on a number of different issues. Uh, and these are even areas that we're not immediately think about in this context. Campaign finance, campaign contributions may be affected by this curveball of, of infrastructure projects. Some companies are already preparing for this and reviewing policies. Um, and training employees about the best practices and, and red flags when dealing with public officials. Britt, uh, what about virtual currencies or um, uh, data analytics? Yeah, so virtual currencies and cyber are, are both areas where there's a lot of focus. The infrastructure bill provided some direct funding uh, to promote cyber resilience within certain infrastructure areas. Uh, but there's also False Claims Act implications um, for this. Um, at a recent event in the Aspen Cyber Summit, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco stated that DOJ is poised to sue government contractors and other companies who receive government funding if they fail to report breaches of their, their systems or misrepresent their cybersecurity practices. So that, I think, is definitely a new area for the False Claims Act space. Um, and that's aimed at government contractors and in entities who provide cybersecurity products. Um, but I think it's just part of the bigger um, focus on cyber. As many of you may know, the SEC has a cyber rulemaking going on right now about what companies have to disclose when they have been the victim of a cyber breach. In terms of virtual currency and digital assets, that's the space where um, the DOJ has become more active and the SEC is very active as well, which we'll touch on in a minute. But DOJ recently created a cryptocurrency enforcement team and, and appointed uh, former AUSA Yoon Choi as the director. She's also coming from the Deputy Attorney General's office. So she's charged with um, promoting uh, government investigations and enforcement of the responsible use of cryptocurrencies and really uh, ferreting out uh, actors who may be facilitating um, or using uh, digital assets to bring about uh, criminal activity. Um, so I, I think we'll see more activity from there, both from a prosecution standpoint and from a policymaking standpoint. But that task force appears to have a very broad mandate to work within the U.S. government and abroad. How is the SEC dealing with virtual currencies? Well, the SEC is very active right now in the, the crypto space. Um, and the SEC is working very hard to maintain its relevance as the markets change. Very recently, uh, the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, spoke and he indicated that SEC regulation is tech neutral and that digital assets that are securities will be regulated like securities. Um, obviously, things like the Howey test date back to the 1940s and, and did not contemplate something like crypto and digital assets. Um, so the SEC is working very hard to, to prove that those uh, standards that have long existed are adaptable going forward. Um, so his words were, there's no reason to treat the crypto market differently just because different technology is used. 
So I think we will continue to see more of that from the SEC. And, and here's what the SEC's thinking appears to be on the crypto markets. They, they appear to be breaking down the market into three buckets, the platforms, the stable coins, and the tokens. So Gensler has said publicly that most crypto tokens, in his view, are securities. There are a few that may be commodities or a few that may be currencies. But at the end of the day, most of them, he believes that either satisfy the Howey test or the Reeves test. So from the standpoint of the platforms, the SEC's view is if you're a crypto platform, then you inevitably must be um, a, a securities platform because you couldn't be trading that many different tokens and not have some of the B securities. So the SEC is focused on registering crypto platforms that trade securities as exchanges, and they're working with the CFTC to develop a regulatory scheme for platforms that are a mix of commodities and securities. And within the context of these platform issues, the SEC is evaluating custody and market making issues for crypto platforms. And in the stablecoin space, um, they're asset-based, and so they implicate financial stability. So there are many FSOC type of considerations that the SEC is focused on in that area um, because they're viewed as being similar to money market accounts. So the concerns are with loss of pegs or inability to redeem. Um, and then from the standpoint of criminal enforcement, which is something I'm sure the DOJ crypto task force is focused on, is that stable coins can move without intersecting with fiat currency and traditional banking systems. So they are viewed as being a mechanism for illicit activity. But even without the illicit activity component, there's concerns about investor protection because investors typically don't own the stable coins, the platforms do. So there may be market integrity, redemption, or conflicts of interest issues in play. But the tokens, I think, is the area where the SEC is doing the most. You're seeing it um, in a lot of their Section 5 cases involving Ripple and the like, um, because the issue is whether a particular crypto token is a security and the SEC's analysis is based on the facts and circumstances for each type of token, which is problematic for people who are trying to understand where they might fit. But the current SEC initiatives are focused on uh, getting crypto token issuers to register the offerings and sales and submit to the SEC's regulatory regime for disclosure, compliance with anti-fraud provisions and the like. Um, obviously, there could be ones that may be eligible for a registration exemption, uh, but really the focus there is on registration of the tokens and issuances. And Director Gruwal has said that if you want to understand the SEC's enforcement stance on crypto, to read the BlockFi order. The BlockFi order is a recent settled action involving BlockFi lending, which was a crypto lending platform um, that ended up settling with the SEC for violations of Section 5. And in that settled order, the SEC laid out its analysis of the crypto tokens and why they were securities. And they talked about them being notes under the Reeves test. And you can see the excerpt of the section of the order there. And they also talked about them as being uh, investment contracts under the Howey test. And this next slide shows the analysis in the order under the Howey test. Uh, because at the end of the day, the SEC's view is that the crypto tokens are sort of beside the point that they're, they're a tangible or well, technically not tangible concept, but they're really not the purpose. Like people aren't really buying crypto. They're really buying um, the right to profit from the investment and in some sort of ongoing enterprise that will produce an ecosystem that they can someday make money off of. 
But this may be an obvious question, but does a virtual currency company uh, deal with SEC compliance any differently than another type of company? Well, I think the issues can be a bit different depending on the maturity stage of the company. Um, the SEC is encouraging crypto entities to engage with the SEC to come into compliance with federal securities laws. So how that might be depends on whether it's a company that's already come to market or whether it's a company that may be coming to market. If you're in the early stages and maybe coming to market, there's the opportunity to engage with FinHub and potentially work out whether you may be a security and how you could avoid being a security. But for existing companies who have been in the market and now they realize they may be violating the securities laws, then you get into thorny issues of self-reporting and that's exacerbated in the crypto context because the SEC uh, is focused on future compliance, but it's not bringing amnesty for past violations. So there's going to still be consequences even if a self-report is made um, and the company is being viewed as cooperative. Like BlockFi lending is touted by the SEC as a model of cooperation and, and cooperation credit was awarded and favorable consideration was made for remedial efforts. Notwithstanding, BlockFi lending still paid the SEC a $50 million penalty and was forced to stop the line of business and, and is still working to come into compliance with the securities laws. Mm. And we hear a lot of concerns uh, from clients in, in two other areas, cyber as well as uh, sanctions in light of what's happening in in Ukraine. What's important to know about uh, those areas? Well, I mean, I think cyber is the same thing that we talked about because I think cyber uh, hacks are a concern in the current environment and, and so are uh, crypto is a way to potentially evade sanctions. But I think in general, we're going to see increased sanctions and in export control enforcement. There was already a, 150 open sanctions and export control cases before the invasion of Ukraine and they were involving Iran, China, Russia, and North Korea. So I think those numbers will increase in absolute sense and the proportion will probably skew towards Russia. Um, in addition, obviously, there's there's foreign other in issues involving foreign entities that we will see increasing. But on the whole, I think we're going to see a continuing uptick in all areas of white collar criminal and, and civil regulatory enforcement. What do you think? I think that's right. I mean, the 10 percent increase last year uh, it sort of proves it. Um, the, the last administration focused more on immigration and opioids. Violent crimes is its priority uh, areas, at least before the pandemic hit. So I think what we're seeing now is a shift back to the traditional areas of, of white collar enforcement in, uh, and on the sanctions point specifically, in recent remarks in New York, Deputy Attorney General Monaco said sanctions is the new FCPA. So I think you're going to see a, a lot more of those uh, types of cases. Right. And, and there seems to be tax coming out of DOJ as another area where we may see continuing work. Uh, and healthcare fraud is the old favorite priority. So I'm sure that will continue. What do you think about that? Yeah, there was just a takedown actually this past week. Um, 20 over 20 defendants across nine federal districts involving uh, COVID-19 testing, which was used for uh, false billing during the pandemic. Um, that's always uh, leads the numbers in uh, the department's statistics. Um, but I know we've thrown a lot of information at our audience, uh, but what can they do to stay ahead of some of these regulatory curves in the near term? Yeah, we've, we've obviously touched on a lot of areas and just this 
scale of it could seem overwhelming. But at the end of the day, I think the fundamental consideration is on compliance programs and compliance officers um, stepping up and being able to demonstrate to DOJ that they're doing everything they can to empower employees to respond appropriately to ethical challenges, uh, providing appropriate training, providing appropriate remedies and discipline as necessary. And I, I think they want to see the tune at the top. The, the companies are putting people in charge who are walking the walk and modeling ethical behavior. Right. You hear a lot about, about the, the cultures of compliance, which seems like a, a sort of a fuzzy concept, but at its basic level, it's whether a company has a system in place that can immediately detect, remediate, and discipline wrongdoing, and then adapts to ensure that these types of um, discrepancies or errors don't happen uh, in the future. Uh, with that, we have our, our final slide here. You can point your phone at the QR code there. It'll have our contact information. Nick, do we have any questions from the audience with our remaining seven minutes here? And again, apologies for starting late. Uh, well, we do have a question about predictions on the potential use of monitors by DOJ. I'm not sure. Maybe we address that a little bit, but. Do you have any predictions on the potential use of monitors by DOJ? They've already had two cases, uh, so it uh, seems like they're using them um, for sure um, in, in two recent resolutions on very different um, areas of enforcement as well. One, one was on a false claims and the other one was on uh, or a procurement fraud and then the other one was on a financial fraud uh, matter. So it seems like it's um, it's going to be a tool that's going to be used uh, much more frequently than it has in the in the past. And Joe Whitley would be an outstanding choice as a monitor. I second that. Uh, I second that. Well, good. Uh, for the audience members remaining, if you'd like to get a question in here in the last five minutes, uh, please submit your uh, written question via the chat, and we'll take it now. Well, I don't see any questions now. If we get one, I will let you know, but I'll give you a chance for any closing remarks you'd like to make this afternoon. Sure. Thank you for listening. And, and we are happy to answer any questions that may come up offline. So feel free to reach out. Thank you. Thanks for attending today. Great. Thank you all very much. And on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank you, uh, Luke and Britt, for, for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise this afternoon. Thank you to our audience for uh, dialing in and for your patience uh, while we figured out our, our, our technical difficulties. Um, as, as always, keep an eye on your email and our website for announcements about upcoming events like this one. Uh, but until that next event, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.